Welcome to CentCast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Buccino. Crespo, I want to share five words with you. Five words, all right, let me get this straight. Uh, probably the official podcast of CENTCOM. No. No? Uh, all right, well, people, partners, and innovation. That's four words. Okay. Just, United States Central Command. Okay, that's still forward. You're getting further away from it. I didn't want you to guess. I said I was going to share five words with you. Here's what I'm thinking. Five words. Rapid Deployment mm. Joint Task Force. That's right. Today, we're talking about the brief history of the Rapid Deployment Joint Task Force, sometimes referred to by the awful acronym RGTF or RDJTF, the organization preceding U.S. Yeah. Central Command. It's a mouthful, though. And we have referenced this in previous episodes, but we've never told its full story. It's a short story, but it's a story that needs to be told. You know, CENTCOM carries the lineage of the Rapid Deployment Joint Task Force. Like CENTCOM, the RDJTF was stationed on McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. It's a short story. It came, it went, its title was too long. Yeah, that's right. I remember we've talked about it a long time ago here. So sometimes to understand and appreciate where you are, it's very important to hear, maybe delve back into where you came from. And this story is, is very captivating. By the way, I am your co-host, Joe Crespo. Yeah, we haven't seen you in a while. You do co-host the show. Thanks for coming back. The RGDF was formed in 1980, March 1st, 1980 to be exact. And before the formation of the RGDF, we ought to go back and understand where the country and the region were. We can do that pretty quickly, right? Yeah, I mean, it was before I was born, so you were probably in school, maybe. So in 1977, I was three. President <laughs> Carter is elected and you know, at this time, our focus here within the United States, the United States focus in the region was really tied to the Shah of Iran. And the Shah was our friend in the region. We'd really leaned on Iran in terms of stability across the region. And around that time, you know, the Soviets had the ability to project power into the Middle East. We really did not. We had no structure to do that. So 1977, Air Force General George Brown, he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, eighth chairman in our history. He is presented with a paper by the Joint Staff on the development of a command focused on the Middle East. Mm -hmm. He presents it to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Everyone nods. Yes, this is a good idea. Let's do this. It is presented to the White House. Everyone nods. Yes, let's do this. This is a good idea. And then... It seems like, Crespo, as best we can tell, it just kind of sat on a shelf. Like, we, yes, we want to do this. It's a good idea, mm -hmm. but there's no urgency about it. Mm -hmm. They had and all the approvals and everything, right, up to, the, up to the commander in chief? It didn't have formal approvals. It was accepted as a good idea. Gotcha. Then, January 1979, we lose the Shah of Iran. January 16th, 1979, the Shah flees Iran in what will become permanent exile. Now we've got urgency. So the loss of the Shah then spurred a great revolution, right? No, not exactly. The revolution pushed him out. The revolution really took over Tehran after he left. Mm -hmm. And this is ground we've covered in episode six. So I'd ask people to go back and listen if you've not already. But for our purposes today, it's important just to understand that the departure of the Shah from Iran in January 1979 set in motion a real... First of all, it, it established a gap in our security architecture. You know, now the Shah was formally deposed the, the next year. But at the in the moment, it's a stunning thing. So you think about the way we viewed the world at the time. This is in the context of the Cold War. We now have a gap mm -hmm, that right. the Soviets can take advantage of. Right. And that thereby put us in disadvantage. And there was a real concern about a Soviet invasion into Iran. Now, before this time, the U.S. really relied almost entirely on partners 
in that part of the region? Mostly on one partner, Iran. Iran. A little bit on Saudi Arabia, but mostly on mm -hmm. Iran. And think about it this way, Crespo. The U.S. sold arms to Iran throughout the 1970s. I'm talking jet fighters, laser-guided mm -hmm. bombs, advanced weapons. Between 1972 and 1978, Iran purchased $15 billion in U.S. weapons. Imagine what you would do with that kind of money. Oh, I don't know. Buy, probably buy my own jet, too. So Nixon, President Nixon, believed that strengthening Iran's military would stabilize the Middle East, mm -hmm. thereby protecting not only Iran's oil supply, but also all the oil reserves of all the countries bordering the Arabian Gulf. Yikes. That's a lot. That's all you can say? That's your contribution to the show? I mean, <laughs> well, I'm saying that this is, this is a real change to the American policy with Iran today. That's right. Very good. Okay. So now, 1979, the Shah's deposed, the Ayatollah takes power. There's a concern in the Pentagon that, like I said, the Soviet Union is going to invade. Mm -hmm. This could trigger a global war. And because our policy was to rely on Iran in the Middle East, we had no way no. to project power into that part of the world. Yeah, and that's not good. I tell you, your contributions to this episode are so meaningful. It's not good. <laughs> it's not. Thank you. But, okay, but, but early 1979... So what happens? The Jimmy Carter administration dusts off that 1977 plan that we talked about? That's, exa that's exactly right. That original plan from 1977 is for a rapid deployment force, unnamed at the time. Mm -hmm. You're, we're talking about a maritime prepositioned force, kind of like floating out at sea mm -hmm. with a combined airlift and sea lift capability somewhere in the U.S. that can respond to a global crisis. So the Shah goes away in January 1979, and by October of 1979, so very quickly, a decision is made to stand up this new unit, the Rapid Deployment Joint Task Force. And the goal is to establish the command by early 1980. So this is all happening lightning fast. Right. Early 1980, the Secretary of Defense is Harold Brown. He orders the establishment of the RDJTF as a three-star command. That command then comes here and be, to be established at MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. That's right, and there's a few advantages. The first one is the ability to project power out of here. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've got an airfield, you fly things out of here, you can maintain fleets here. And then you also had here at the time the Readiness Command. This is a four-star command under an Army general. It was established in 1972, and the Readiness Command would be over the top of our JIDF. So they're, right. they're stationed here, their headquarters are here. So it's a four-star. REDCOM is a four-star, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Position, RDJTF commander uh, that's appointed. His name is Lieutenant General. Paul Kelly, United States Marine Corps. Kelly is first commander of the Rapid Deployment Joint Task Force. Correct. General Kelly, United States Marine Corps, commissioned out of Villanova University in 1950, joins the Marines, and then shortly after his, he's promoted to major and lieutenant colonel, he goes to command a battalion in Vietnam. And while he's in Vietnam, highly decorated uh, during that tour, he earns a Silver Star Medal, Legion of Merit with Combat Valor Device, and two awards of the Bronze Star Medal with the combat device, so highly decorated. As a general officer, he commands the 4th Marine Division in 1975, and as he's promoted to three-star to lieutenant general, he's appointed by the president as the first commander of the RDJTF. And subsequently, after the command, uh, to wrap his bio up, he's promoted to four-star, becomes the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps, mm. and then in 1983, he becomes the commandant of the Marine Corps. So impressive, impressive leader. He was, and right here at this point, Crespo, maybe we should explain that there's a real inter-service rivalry that's brewing around the establishment of the RDJTF. This was all before the 1986 Goldwater-Nichols Act, 
that sought to solve inter-service rivalry that grew in the aftermath of World War II and really hardened during Vietnam. So why do you say rivalry? Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a natural fight for resources, mm-hmm. for authority, and you know, obviously with authority comes more resources, relevance, all these kind of things. And here, with regard to the RDJTF, the different services wanted to run this new command. And you know, the Army and the Air Force were on board immediately, mm-hmm. but the Marine Corps and the Navy were not. The Marines thought this new command would limit autonomy and the employment of Marines. You know, they'd be kind of chopped over to an Army unit or sliced over to an Army unit for rapid deployment. And, you know, the Marines and the Navy voted like a block traditionally back then. The Army and Air Force were another block. I see. And, you know, the Department of Defense to get the Marine Corps on board brings in Paul Kelly, a Marine general. So they assigned a Marine general. And the Department of Defense also brings in Bob Taylor, who's an Air Force general, to be the first deputy commander. And this was done really to appease the services. Taylor, the deputy commander, was selected and told about his selection before anyone decided on Kelly. So here's the message to the Marine Corps. You will not just be a force contributor to an army command, which is what they were worried about, which is part of what they were worried about. But the Department of Defense said, we are going to rotate this between the Marine Corps and the army each time. So it'll be Marine first, then it'll be an army general behind him. Paul Kelly, Marine General, gets the Marine Corps and Navy on board with the concept. This concept, by the way, of a rotating command, this carried over to CENTCOM. And U.S. Central Command was the first combatant command to establish a rotating command. So if you think about, you know, the lifespan of U.S. Central Command, it's rotated up until 2006. It's rotated between the Army and the Marines. Right, right. And you see that as you're walking through the hallways of our headquarters building, you see the past commanders and you can tell pretty quickly Army, you know, Marine, Army, Marine, Army, 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 and the Marines. Yeah. And it's it, fascinating. It, 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 is, it is fascinating. So one thing that's interesting is, like I said, CENTCOM holds the lineage of the RDJTF. So in a lineal purview, Kelly is the first CENTCOM commander. Then you had Kingston, Army, number two, comes in uh, right behind him and then establishes CENTCOM. Number three is Chris. Now you're back to a Marine in 85 to 88. Behind him is Schwarzkopf, number four, Army. Number five, Hoare, Joseph Hoare, Marine Corps. Behind him in 94 is P, Army, Zinni, Marine Corps, number seven, and then Tommy Frank's Army. It was at that point, number eight, in 2003, when Donald Rumsfeld broke up this back and forth between Army and Marine Corps. So Abizade replaced Frank, so Army to Army. And then behind Abizade came Fallon, who was the first Admiral, Navy. First Admiral. Navy. Mm. Um, okay, so a little, uh, little note on, on CENTCOM history. So let's talk a little bit maybe about the way that RGJTF was established to deploy. Okay, like basing? Yeah, basing's interesting because the RDJTF intentionally developed so that it would not look like an invasion force. So there were no bases. Right. There were no troops in the Middle East. The RDJTF was structured as a force to deter Soviet aggression from outside the Middle East. When you go through the source documents, a purpose of the RDJTF was to assist Middle East nations in resisting the Soviets. And when deployed, this unit, the RGJTF, would start with zero combat power and support structure in these land masses in the Middle East. So it's a difficult task because you've got to go in, you've got to set the theater, then you've got to build combat power, you've got to build logistic support. So that's a, a real challenge when you think about responding to something. 
The idea is that on an invitation from a Middle Eastern nation or a group of nations, the Arjidif would you know, rapidly deploy a significant force to the region. The hope actually was that the, the presence of such a force would signal to the Soviets that the Americans mean business. If you move your forces into the region or your forces closer to where we don't want you to be, that could result in a direct confrontation with the United States. And of course, the Soviets did not want that at the time. And one thing that's interesting here, assigned to the Arjidif... The only thing you had assigned to the Arjidif was 261 people. It was a headquarters. Most, the, the army was the biggest contributor, 56 officers and 42 enlisted. But you had army, air force, navy, marine corps officer enlisted in that 261. And the decision is made before March 1st, 1980, which is the Arjidif was officially established. Leading up into that, the decision was made that the Arjidif was always going to evolve into a regional unified command. And then eventually cease to be subordinate to readiness command right. and become its own become its own four star headquarters four star headquarters. And of course, it all happened very quickly. In fact, the Arjidif's lifespan was only one thousand thirty six days. Mm. How long have you been alive? More than one thousand thirty six days <laughs> for sure. Under Paul Kelly's command, there were units that were identified for Arjidif deployment. You had, for example, from the Army, the eighty second Airborne Division. The 101st Airborne Division, fabled right. units in U.S. military history. The 24th Mechanized Infantry Brigade, which is part of the Georgia National Guard. Two Ranger Battalions. Then from uh, the Marine Corps, you had about 50,000 troops from three amphibious brigades. From the Navy, a variety of three aircraft carrier task forces. The aircraft, the Air Force, tactical fighter wings, and airlift wings. Yeah. So everybody's contributing. Everybody's, and, and then, you, like you said, there's, there's some famous fabled uh, units altogether. I mean, you talk about the Rangers in the 82nd, 101st. So we've kind of talked about the formation, the philosophy, the structure. Tell us, Crespo, about some of the missions. Yeah, so the mission sets of the Argetif, they vary as well. I mean, you're talking security cooperation, exercises were plenty. You know, talk about exercises that are still used today, Bright Star, Gallant Knight, Bold Eagle, Bold Star. All this while also working towards the creation of that separate unified command for Southwest Asia, soon to be known as U.S. CENTCOM. Yeah, and when you go through the, the official history of 1980-1981 of RGJHF, which I have in front of me, it was a little bit of Sleepy Hollow, honestly. I mean, they would deploy a small group of staff officers for an exercise, they'd come back, they'd kind of plan an exercise. It's certainly, they, they were not tracking movements and operations in the region like CENTCOM does. What were some of the problems that they faced then? Well, it was a force in search of a mission. Mm -hmm. And there's a wide range of threats, but I told you they had less than 300 people. You had, of course, the threat of Soviet invasion into the Middle East, and with no forces, you... It's hard to deter, right? You're trying to deter from Tampa. You've got instability in the Middle East, border disputes, interstate rivalries, and without established relations, mm -hmm. there's really not much you can do about that either. And, you know, you also had the mission of protecting U.S. interests abroad. How all that was supposed to happen and how Arjitif was supposed to do all that is unclear and if you go through the history, it was unclear to the leadership there. Mm. So as CENTCOM mm -hmm. is born, this all these problems, they tee up that impending start of, of CENTCOM in 83 under the command of, of General Kingston. What what can we learn about him? Well, why don't we do, he, I think he deserves, he's an interesting guy. Why don't we do the next episode 
on General Barbed Wire Bob Kingston. I see. All right. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And we'll tie a bow around this. We stumbled over, this was not a very long episode. I think we got through a lot of good information. We stumbled over RDJTF multiple times, but uh, or RJTF. We got through it. And uh, we want to thank the audience for listening. And I want to thank you, Crespo, for helping us with this uh, episode. As always, can't wait for the next one. Can't wait for the next one.